everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. I'm your host, Evan. Hi, and I'm Tom. Uh, and welcome wherever you are uh, in the world. Uh, and thanks for joining. Uh, on today's episode, what are you going to talk about, Tom? So I have prepared um, a little uh, news in science about uh, a superficial sun in Korea. Uh, they manage a, a 20 seconds long fusion reaction, but okay. I'll talk about it later. And in my main story, I'm talking about another possible form of uh, treatment for the COVID-19. Uh, yeah, but it's not a vaccine. It's a, it's supposed to be a treat. It is, it's a treatment in research that's supposed to be, uh, given to people while they have experiencing the infection. Okay. So a bit of, about- uh, a bit of variation bit of about the sun yeah the... I, yeah i was sick about the news in science always being like bio uh, biology or biological sciences mm. so i was like let's move to physics which is completely foreign to me okay and how about you uh yeah so i i yeah uh, uh speaking of how you're sick of it i'm gonna have two kind of things about covid i'm basically about asymptomatic transmission um what's it about should be we we be worried um because we hear this so much about when we talk about COVID, this asymptomatic transmission. So I just wanted to explain it to people, break it down, and then as mm-hmm. well about about a bit about the this one dose, uh, the implications of one dose vaccinating. Um, seems like in, in the UK and in Israel they did a lot of um one dose so far, and then they just want to see is the one dose given as much uh, protection as they had pre- predicted. So. Mm. Wasn't it Germany also that were thinking about doing the one dose uh, treatment? Uh, I don't know. I just knew from this is okay. just a news headline, anyways. So I won't okay. go too much into detail. It's just a brief uh, overview. That's cool. Yeah. So uh, yeah, before we get into our uh, into our stories, what? How are you, Tom? You uh, we're nearly to January now. Nearly to January. Yes. Uh, very busy at work mm. it doesn't feel you know like you're supposed to have like this easy end kind of mo- uh, moment when you like start work after a holiday and you just like slowly getting back into it yeah that was not the case we're just hit in the face with work <laughs> uh but at least that that keeps you busy yeah you know? it's not uh, like you have much else to be doing really no. and isn't it they have a curfew now in the netherlands so oh yeah the curfew so we, you can't you can't leave the house before 4 30 a.m and you have to be inside the house before 9 p.m so uh, i've never been outside uh that long so i think i'm okay okay uh for the curfew hours what is it then are the are the is the red light districts even open then like because well, obviously what if you can't go out at that time then obviously first first of all how would i know <laughs> uh, yeah sorry but, i should ask someone a bit more uh yes i don't know no. what is right uh, what I don't is the red light yeah <laughs> i don't think that? the ladies i don't think the ladies of the night can work during the COVID times oh. i think it's the i think they are restricted i don't know if they if they are being financed for this like if they get in money from the government but i don't think uh they could be performing okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's interesting how, if they have to put a re- like their former occupation uh <laughs> yes no i don't know uh you don't i i don't know i yeah. just don't know yeah it's fine know. it's fine 
We won't. Ha- you don't have to go. Uh, we won't. I won't probe you too much. I <laughs> literally <laughs> is it after after the sunset today. I will go and check if okay. the district is open. But uh, I'll text you. But okay. I'll be home before nine o'clock anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think the other Netherlands news I heard was that they're on about. Uh, in, I think in only Amsterdam, anyways, that they're going to stop coffee shops. I think you can't be able to. Uh, or tourists anyways won't be able to go to coffee shops or buy weed in coffee shops oh that's another piece of news that i'm not aware oh of. really yeah no, so no. um i don't know what they're going to do because i think it's more will drive the black market because people would come over and i'm sure they'll be just uh will be just like oh i'll just get it off a dealer on the street and then smoke it rather than yeah. if they can't get it in the in the coffee shops because as well like i think there's a new uh, train line from london to amsterdam so i think it's not going to stop people coming like, uh, no, w- but no. you can't you can't travel now anyway yeah but i think in the future when hopefully the solo is over um, oh yeah then then they i don't, I don't think it re- i don't think there have the desired effects of stopping people smoking weed or people just coming over to smoke weed i think people will still come and then they'll uh, well, hopefully, hopefully in the hopefully in the near future, the policy on weeds gonna change across the EU. I think now in Ireland, it's uh, they introducing the medical marijuana. Yeah, yeah, but it's still very slow steps. So I uh, I won't hold my breath for the next five years, anyways. <laughs> Maybe do. Uh, <laughs> uh, and the and the news for me as well, actually. Uh, and I think I told you this. I deleted my Facebook. Oh yes. Uh, that was very annoying for me because I was trying to tag you and I couldn't find you. I know it's such a weird thing when um, you're uh, well, like when you're trying to publicize a, something you do, and then at the same time you're like, I want to like reduce my social media uh, usage, so I'm deleting Facebook. So it's kind of like paradoxical because you're like want to promote, but then you're also reducing your usage. And as well, and how does it feel? Yeah, it's fine. I never like Facebook was just useless anyways i only ever used it to kind of uh i actually yeah tr- i followed the guardian on it and i used to read articles and that was all i used it for there wasn't much wasn't like i got much info off friends or anything on it so mm. okay and then as well like we both switched to signal as well and from whatsapp yes uh I, i'm even trying to convince my parents yeah well i asked my sisters to con- well i sent a message to the whatsapp chat about signal and then i left my sisters take care of the conversion okay uh, yeah is it happening uh, i my dad said we do whatever you you are doing so that was that was the that was the end of it i haven't heard anything since um, yeah i yeah, but even, true i don't, haven't even tried to convince my friends or family because i'm just like is it worth the effort but maybe people are open to the idea because i think everyone's so wary of facebook so yeah i think I think it has to be a hundred percent conversion to actually to benefit <laughs> from it because like you can't have like all of your uh, all of your friends and whatever move to signal and then you use you and then you still use whatsapp to talk to your map because then the whole purpose of not using whatsapp like you know it's not existing like okay. i think you have to move in completely over in a way that the whatsapp would not be able to uh, okay. track you or what's not oh okay so i'm it's all or nothing I think it's all or nothing. One of my friends here in the Netherlands, uh, she actually sent a message uh, to everyone that she's moving from WhatsApp to Signal, and if you want to reach her, like you have to have Signal. And uh-huh. then she just, and then she just moved. 
<laughs> so like either come with me or yeah go <laughs> f yourself yeah and then just so people know it's because of the new tracking policies that policies that whatsapp is trying to introduce right i think it's it's the privacy concerns that oh, they're yeah. afraid that they'll be sharing more info uh with their facebook and, th and the way they said it initially was like oh if you don't agree with these terms just delete whatsapp they're not gonna they weren't gonna compromise at all so people were like oh well then i'm just gonna switch i've seen like uh the downloads of signal went from like two hundred and thirty thousand to up to like eight million after the announcement by whatsapp so they've kind of damaged already their brand yeah. and who recommended was it elon musk that recommended I don't know where well John was the one who told me so well I learned about signal from Joe Rogan when they had Snowden <laughs> on okay he, uh, he has been using it and then yeah uh, so then I downloaded right after watching that episode and that was like few months ago and I remember <laughs> sending it uh, sending a, a invitation to signal to our share whatsapp group with the other lads um, back from home and everybody just ignored me <laughs> no one responded to that invitation and now everybody's switching to signal so i'm yeah. asking what's up so you you had you were already the you were already converted and no you were waiting for everyone to catch up to you yeah i was there on signal <laughs> with like literally no one to talk to and like the people who also had signal from my contact list it were like these kind of people i avoided talking to so it wasn't any point messaging them either <laughs> I was like, yeah. why am I having this app if none of my friends are using it? <laughs> you had like your foot in one each uh, in each uh, app, really. Yeah. You're like, yeah. I want to move, but I'm still stuck in the, the old <laughs> one. So. Yeah, but it's nice to see that uh, more, more people are moving now. Yeah, yeah. So anyone else listening, we recommend Signal. We're not getting sponsored, but hopefully they might sponsor us after this. <laughs> so much love in your voice <laughs> uh, there's only one thing i want to mention before you go into the yeah. this, the the our actual program did you hear about this guy who injected himself with magic mushrooms no so that was like i don't want to talk about this as like an and serious science case okay but this guy he grabbed like a bunch of uh, psych, uh psychoactive mushrooms and he makes them in a way that he was able to inject them into his vein and they, how did they, he uh how did he even get them into a liquid let's like blend it and i think he blended it i don't know <laughs> but like at the end of the day he injected it into his vein and i think he died because they started growing in his uh in his circulatory system the the fungi the, the mushroom they grew well, the fungi grow in the wet, dark places. So, like, the inside of your body is pretty dark and wet. And, but uh, if and it, what? That sounds that sounds weird. I, yeah, I, I would grew. think you would think that your body would clear it out of your system. I don't know how much he injected or how. I don't know details of it, but I know he they they just start colonizing his like veins. What? That's mad. And I don't think he got even high from that. I think it was just very painful okay so your message is please don't inject <laughs> magic mushrooms it's a it is the, my message is that the system failed us if they couldn't explain to this man how to safely <laughs> and properly do drugs and he somehow decided to inject mushrooms this is evidence of the state failing us okay where was this america States. 
Florida. I don't know if it was in Florida. <laughs> okay. Okay. Of course, yeah. it's American. Did you see Michelle Obama's outfit for the Joe Biden's inauguration? Yeah, they were like, she looked like a bad. But have you seen the one when they, uh, when they Photoshop her to look like Anakin Skywalker killing the younglings? Oh no, Jen. I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah. And oh uh, I thought that was super funny because with her outfit, she did look like a little bit like Jedi. Yeah, uh, and the be the Bernie. Oh my God! Oh, the what, Bernie means. Yeah. What a legend! He really came in there looking like he's just uh, on the way to the post office. Yeah, I I suppose I don't know why he got some memes so much. Like I didn't know was it that because good? it was so out of place. <laughs> I saw yeah. on the I saw on the our Reddit island that someone said that he looks like. Uh, uh, major league GAA trainer yeah, yeah. or something like I that. I know he looked like he was at a junior B game or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so we'll go into our uh, news headlines. Will I kick it off then? Sure. Um, yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, there's concerns that suggest one dose of Pfizer, of the Pfizer vaccine could be less effective than expected. So at the moment in the UK anyways and in Israel, uh, I think they were trying to get as many people with the first dose um, and then they were at, at what they had published in these trials is that um, you were meant to give the the second dose three to four weeks after the first dose like that was in the UK and then decided we would they would uh, extend it to 12 weeks rather than the three to four weeks. Uh, just to get as much people covered because at the moment with the shortages of vaccine you're kind of coming to do a, to a dilemma. You're like, should I just get as many people covered or should we just get the people who had the first dose to get them the proper uh, immuno Im immunity to the virus? So they decided to do the former. But now it came out in Israel, which has vaccinated more than 75% of its older people, uh, that the, the first dose only led to a 33% reduction in cases compared with the efficacy of at least 52% reported in, in clinical trials with the Pfizer vaccine. Sorry, say that again? It basically said that the the first dose, which if you get the first dose of the, the vaccine, supposedly yeah. you would have like a 50% uh, reduction in, or yeah, there would be a 50% reduction in uh, the chance of you getting COVID. So yeah. the efficacy would be around 50%. Whereas with Israel, they said that actually in the the first dose only led to a 33% reduction in cases so a lot less than what had been reported i suppose listening to our podcast last week it's not that surprising <laughs> um uh but yeah the report compared the infection data of 200,000 people aged 60 and over who were not vaccinated with the infection data of the same age group who received the one vaccine dose uh and they were monitored for at least 11 days from the date of vaccination and it was only on the day 14 that there was a significant decrease of around 33% in rate of positive tests for the coronavirus amongst those who had been vaccinated. And this decrease remained the same between days 15 and 17. So a lot less uh, efficacy than had been reported. So yeah, the, the reason in the thought maybe was that because the report only included people over age 60 and over, Whereas the Pfizer trials also included younger people. So maybe you're like, okay, so we only looked at older people. That's why that this difference was seen. But yeah. uh, 
as well the the lab study for the Israel they routinely tested those who chose to be able to be tested whereas the Pfizer one only did it on appearance of symptoms so maybe that could have been another reason so and has do you know if the Pfizer itself came out and gave a comment or statement about you know the government's thinking about prolonging the I think they said that well they don't recommend delaying it by that much and again like looking at this it seems like uh if it's only 33% reduction then you would kind of would prioritize then given the second dose yeah rather than giving the first dose to as many people as possible um but one professor at this London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine he said that uh the UK is going to soon have more info about this as well because they're doing the exact same but made the statement that if the efficacy after one dose was 33% and increased after two doses to 60%, the UK policy would be justified. So I don't know. He he thinks that this is still fine, that even if it's a 30, even though 33% is still low, it's still somewhat of a uh, immunity. And he thinks that would be justified. So this is what so some experts thinks- are saying. I don't know. It, it's hard. It's a hard one to know. Um, who who who's right really i i still think if it's that low i would rather give the two doses and at least have the full protection in the in the in the pop these people in the population rather than this kind of halfway immunity so i don't know so he thinks that some immunity is better than non-immunity that's why he mm. says like let's just give them a vaccine and then let's vaccinate as many people as we can with the doses we have in in house and then it would and then because of that it would stretch the period by the time the second dose can be administered uh yeah yeah but, but i they suppose they're, gi- they, they're going to publish their data soon so mm-hmm. maybe they'll find it might be higher than the israel one because they'll have uh seen it in a different ages whereas this one was only in the an older population i suppose mm-hmm. it would be always lower in, a, in an older population as well so we will wait and see what they publish and what they say because i think uh, the implications of this could have uh, could be big because it then could maybe if the efficacy is higher than fifty percent, then it could uh, indicate to a lot of countries, or maybe we could just do the one dose then as well to a lot more people, and then just give the second dose and extend that. So yeah, we will wait and th- see. Do you think that this whole uh, discussion about uh, the time between the second dose, whether it should be what is recommended or whether it should be longer. Do you think this is just basically politics, politics disguised as science? <laughs> or uh, or do you think that there is actual scientific value to kind of evaluating whether a longer period between dose one and two is justified? I think it definitely must be politics because uh if it was published that way the the protocol was published that way in the journal articles and this is what they found why would you mess with it uh, unless you were trying to push out and get as many people dosed um i think it's a bit scientific because they're like okay we think it it still gives immunity so we'll just try it but the fact that they just don't know for sure is a bit kind of like unusual that they, they decided to progress with this kind of protocol but yeah, I think, obviously, I think so many people are uh, being critical of vaccine rollout. So I think they're just like, okay, we'll just let people get as many people um, vaccinated yeah. rather than, than ho- hold on and 
way to to give only people some people second doses it's a kind of a tricky situation it's a pity that we're in it because of the shortages of vaccine that we could just follow it normally but i suppose this is the way this is the the kind of situation we're in so they're so, trying to uh, adapt yeah if i can just add to it when um over the christmas period uh i was watching news and uh, it was a polish news and they were actually discussing the issue of extending the second dose um, mm. vaccination time so something similar that was going on in uk and then i just think i was lucky watching this particular segment news because one of the people uh, who's in this board of vaccine management or whatever you call it and uh, as they were deliberating whether they should or should not extend the second dose that person just got up and said like uh, why are you trying to deliberate on something that you have no idea about it's clearly that the manufacturer recommended this specific time period for the second dose so why now are you trying to like justify your political uh, choices uh, by using some science and stuff like that so i thought i was like okay as much as they criticize poly polish politics and stuff like yeah. that this was pretty uh that was pretty reasonable what happened yeah. there yeah so i actually i i think there is no extension between doses in poland um yeah so. in Ar in ireland as well uh just for if irish people want to know they it was 21 days between the doses but they decided to extend that now to 28 days so it's still a lot shorter compared to the 12 weeks that the uk have decided to go with um but yeah it's just uh generally in it's this yeah again covid era a lot of stuff is being done when it's not been proven in uh, clinical trials or in data published so uh it's kind of a bit unusual in that but we will see i i'd be yeah. interested to see what um if they do if they publish anything hopefully it might be soon it'd be very useful yeah i think it's one of these things that we say time will tell right the long-term yeah. effects of the vaccine time will tell uh discrepancies in vaccine administrations time will tell it's <laughs> like they, they keep piling up yeah yeah okay uh so yeah what uh what was your news headline then tom sure so i was inspired uh by watching a segment on the cuban crisis during christmas holidays cuban about, uh, cuban crisis you know oh the missile the, crisis the missile cuban crisis oh, yeah. yeah sorry so i was like okay that's uh, so that's how it started my interest with nuclear chemistry or nuclear physics huh. and nuclear history and then i came across this uh, this uh, this science article science news where in korea artificial sun breaks world record running for an incredible 20 seconds oh wow so for 20 seconds they were able to raise the ion temperature of over 100 million degrees celsius wow. so basically the rich in so the so now we're talking about uh, plasma this for in this form of heat so this generator they use they generate plasma so basically it's like our sun that's why they call it artificial sun and this is the continuation of work that started in 2018 when they were able to reach this temperature for 1.5 seconds uh last year it was eight seconds well and now it's uh now it's 20 seconds and basically they experiment with this because they're trying to achieve nuclear fusion which gives way more energy than nuclear fission which is what yeah. we're doing right now in the nuclear um nuclear factories or mm. nuclear plants 
Um, yeah, so the nuclear fusion, which is joining of two light elements, it creates way more energy and doesn't create any nuclear nu nuclear um, waste. waste. Yeah, so yeah. it's like kind of very clean energy. But one of the uh, limiting factors is because they have to achieve this crazy high temperatures for the nuclear fusion to actually take place. And before that, before this, before this, it was unachievable. And um, and another drawback is that you have to the the end of the nuclear fusion still produce hydrogen, which is used as a fuel for it to start, but it doesn't produce as much hydrogen as it needs it uh, to fuel the reaction. So it's actually so you actually continuously have to pump uh, fuels and resources into this kind of thing to be functioning. By the reward rewards are so huge in terms of energy output that it's very, uh, very temp tempting and very beneficial. So uh, I thought that was something interesting. Um, they, by, they say by 2025, they try, they, their aim is to run this, uh, this high temperature thing for 300 seconds. So wow. and did they get able to use any of the energy or I don't know what did they do with the energy? Oh, just obviously would be just a test to see if yeah. it could be done. Uh, I think they just wanted to see if their uh, if the plant they have or the device uh, they have uh, is able to sustain these high temperatures and for how long they can control it because it all has to be done in a controlled manner. Mm. Uh, it can be as it can be left uh, as the sun is like uncontrolled and very volatile, you know. Uh, so I think f for for them, I think important is the ability to maintain and control these high temperatures within this uh device uh so not now they can do it for 20 seconds so oh. i think it's a good idea to to experiment with this and and switch from fission to fusion because at this rate we we produce so much of nuclear wastage that has to be buried or hidden somewhere yeah. that you know people just don't realize and the fact that it can produce cleaner I still think energy. though uh well obviously a fusion would be amazing to have I think this has been been debated like the last eight or 20 years at least about this whole it seems like this re just on the cusp of revolution with fusion and we never seem to be able to uh find a way of actually accurate or efficiently capturing the energy I think isn't it um Perhaps. so this could be a good step yeah, well, maybe maybe the um, maybe the reaching the uh, ability to completely control nuclear fusion is the step that we need, kind of to, that will allow us to leave Earth for other planets. Yeah, you know, so maybe, so um, maybe 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 it's worth the wait. The wait. Well, one step at a time, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I still think I think uh, the I think the nuke the waste from nuclear um, like fu fission was it mm -hmm. fission. Fishing, that, yeah. like splitting of the atoms i still think yeah. it's not compared to what the energy you get out of it it's it's a lot less uh waste compared to all the other um types of uh unrenewable like coal and gas and all that uh yeah, and I, it, it, go on yeah i was just wanna i just wanna counter this by saying that this could be true for like a single uh nuclear fusion uh plant that would do this but then you think about how many of these are in states. I think France has uh, nuclear plants as well. Japan, uh, Germany, Russia, they all produce like waste at the extraordinary scale and they all have to, they all have to be buried somewhere. And mm. some of these, uh, half-lives, uh, of decay for some of these waste, it's 
in the hundreds and if not thousands of years and mm. for i think right now it's all getting buried somewhere within the earth crust mm. or whether it's dropped in the oceans and stuff like that so yeah perhaps uh perhaps compared to the other uh to the other source of energies this is not as wasteful but the long-term effects if and w if this way is going to keep agglomerating uh accumulating <laughs> then where are you gonna you know where are you yeah. gonna end up putting it yeah. yeah true true it's um yeah so that's why we hope we can get fusion fusion yeah yeah to put together remember i was that just reminds me of that time you know when cern happened and they were like they all thought a black hole would open up oh yeah <laughs> i think that was definitely like this seemed like more of a chance a black hole happening than cern <laughs> yeah what did they 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 in CERN they have this uh the two particle yeah this particle they, accelerator really, yeah, yeah exactly and they're like oh it's gonna be a black hole and they it was it there what the that they confirmed or measured the higgs bo mm, boson yeah they confirmed was, that yeah, yeah. Uh, well, definitely CERN was a source for inspiration for Dan Brown writing Angels and Demons. Yeah, what was that? Uh, uh, in his book, they create antimatter in CERN, and some pr and the priest stole it, and then he tried <laughs> to blow up the Vatican City with the antimatter. Mas with antimatter, and he was masquerading as the ancient order of, well, not ancient, like the order of Illuminati. Oh, okay. Uh, and he wanted to blame the science for destruction of Vatican. Oh, okay. Or it was I think this that was, elaborated I plot. think, I remember that, I think that wasn't that the book where he, he actually managed to get the antimatter and then gets on a plane, somehow has no parachute, and he uses his, like, jacket, and he falls into the water, and he survives. And I was like, how the <laughs> hell does that, like, happen? I was like, just kill him off I've, like make it it's not realistic i don't uh, well i've rewatched the movie recently <laughs> i haven't I, I i only read the book once so i don't remember how it ends in the oh, in the book but i, I can't even he, remember that movie he ends up in so the river. generic he ends up in the river and i think they made him basically a martyr or something like this i think in the movie it doesn't show that as well i think they skipped there oh, like, in the movies they, they set him on fire or he sets himself on fire or something oh, okay. like that yeah, yeah, but it, I don't think he does the whole thing where it, he 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 falls out of a plane and he somehow survives. I think they didn't do that or something or did they? He definitely survived because he ended up in the river in the book. Now that I remember, yeah, no, but uh, it was just he didn't have a par and I think he had or maybe he was in the plane. There was something that he had that was like kind of act as a parachute, but he didn't have a parachute and it he wasn't still like survived. Was, yeah, 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 that was just well, it was such a it was such a. <laughs> ridiculous i was like god he really could have wrote any other way around this he really wanted him to like seem like he's unkillable robert langdon yeah. uh as they do but yeah that movie was so generic i was like jesus can't um, remember it. yeah yeah anyways yeah. we're but sorry we're getting sidetracked <laughs> so this what podcasts are about opening the literature corner here <laughs> tell us what you thought of the angels and demons <laughs> Yeah. yeah so uh that's pretty much my uh my wrap on the uh um, okay cool on the nuclear fusion nice grand so uh yeah we'll go into our uh main stories then um mm -hmm. what to who what? i can uh i can open up the floor okay. if you want yeah if you Let's um, go with it yeah so i um i was thinking about treatment for covid because last time we did uh vaccines and 
you know, vaccines by they should not be seen as a form of treatment. It's more form of a prophylaxis, really. Uh, but so the treatment, uh, treatment for the uh, viruses. So I started thinking about the antiviral antiviral drugs, and you know, for maybe for people who don't really well, the the, the name is self-explanatory, but. <laughs> It's a medication used for treating viral infection, and there's there's a whole whole range of them, and but unlike most antibiotics, the antiviral drugs do not destroy the target pathogen, but instead they inhibit its development. So uh, it's a, just a different mechanism by which it works. And uh, speaking on the being on the topic of viruses, I don't think we've ever explained like what the virus is since we yeah, start, uh, since we started the. Yeah. Uh, the whole COVID-19 True. and SARS-CoV-2. So maybe again, for people who are not really familiar with the what the concept of virus is, it's basically they're on the verge of life and not alive. Uh, I suppose that's organisms. a big, isn't it uh, like a big debate? People are like, are they living or not living? Um, yeah, exactly. I think they're officially classed that they d- they're not living, but then uh, there's some, like with HIV, I suppose, it stays dormant then reactivates so you're like is that a living thing because you yeah. can do that so yeah that's and especially because they they usually start reproducing once they infect the uh this uh the cell uh so like they can't really reproduce outside of the cell mm, yeah. which is which is one of the characteristic for a living organism and um yeah, they 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 smaller than 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 some than bacteria. They li- really small particles, and uh, and there are more species of viruses in the world than all of other creatures put together. How about for this trivia of knowledge? Wow. So yeah, so uh, following this, I just wanted to remind people that we have been dealing with uh, viruses since the start of human uh, existence on Earth. And there is a smallpox epidemics disaster described in ancient Sanskrit medical texts dating to about uh, 1500s BC. So that's a long time. Rabies has history dating back to 2300s BC in Babylon. Mm. And obviously we are familiar with the Black Deaths, a Black mm. Death that killed more than 20 million people in Europe. And, um, and the, Spanish, the Spanish flu. And the Spanish flu, yes, and uh, Spanish people bring in smallpox to the Native Americans mm. of South Americans. Lots of blood on the Spanish. So <laughs> <laughs> your co- colleagues love to hear that. Yes, and the Inquisition and all. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so obviously we are aware that the viruses are around us. They surround us, and we have to live with them. And now is the time of the SARS-CoV-2, and there have been many attempts to uh, kind of uh, uh, make a drug, or not to make it, but uh, prove that some of the existing drugs are helpful with fighting the COVID-19. And I think you already covered the solidarity trial uh, mm, yeah. that was done when they exp- when they showed that drugs such as Remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine, uh, lopinivir, and dexamethasone. Dexamet- they, they are not really... Well, no, uh, dexamethasone is shown to be beneficial. I think it was like remdesivir. Yeah. Still very debatable. I think it... I don't think it's beneficial... That lopinavir, I don't think, has had that much uh, use. And then there's a new one, I think, this arthritis drug. I can't remember what it was called. And they, like, just how messy things are. It was originally said it was beneficial. And then there there was another trial that had to be stopped because they didn't think it was beneficial. So, 
like this is the this is the problem we're really finding it's like the trials are finding different things so yeah yeah so exactly exactly what you mentioned like for like the hydrochloroquine hydroxychloroquine it started as a a drug for malaria and then it's also is uh, used in treatment of lupus and some other autoimmune diseases and now they try to rebrand it to be to have to show some antiviral activities the same things for remdesivir it it is a by nature uh, an antiviral drug but they try to again like rebrand it towards the uh, COVID-19 and same story for Lopinivir and uh, and the other drugs so there was lo- there's loads of w- research being done in trying to have the drugs that already are on the market and re reprogram them or rebrand them as an antiviral drug mm. but uh, I was interested if there is a uh, something novel um, that is just made for uh, SARS-CoV-2 so there actually I came across this story um where uh where the scientists developed a peptide uh which i will get into later but first thing the way they named it it i think it's ridiculous so the full name <laughs> of this molecule is ace2 interacting domain of sars-cov-2 peptide and the acronym of it which i will use throughout this uh part is called aids <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> unfortunate uh acronym like, like the i think they really tried to make it eight so <laughs> yeah imagine so the, going into your the patient like okay we're going to give you aids for your covid <laughs> <laughs> and they're like what <laughs> what is what can you go again <laughs> yeah so the acronym for this drug is uh for this peptide is eight and uh uh, just overall basis how it works it resembles uh it resembles the ace2 uh, uh part of the it remembers the it resembles the part of the ace2 receptor that binds to the uh, spike protein yeah so yeah the ace2 is the receptor that covid binds the spike protein of the covid binds to yeah is that it? yeah and yeah, the yeah, ace2 and is it's expressed on your lungs uh, lungs, uh, also as well as kidneys and as, and heart as well. So it's kind of a it's a spread across receptor, uh, and but they made uh, some a lookalike in the form of this free circulating peptide. And the idea is that uh, through the uh, means of competition, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein will bind uh, maybe re- more available uh, this uh, AIDS peptide rather than the actual. Uh, actual receptor on the yeah. molecule so this kind of brings up this uh lock and key theory do you remember in the secondary school when you're learning how the enzyme yeah, has yeah. its own substrate so this kind of works at the same level uh and i think i think there's just to continue the story there is something that you also mentioned uh i think you mentioned that the s protein is cleaved into s1 and, and s2 subunit at some point mm. uh when it bi- our I think, COVID story i think it when it bi- well, the spike protein binds to s2 it gets cleaved into s1 and s2 and that's when the virus then can enter yeah the yeah and uh, so the so it's exactly the s1 subunit that uh, is like more involved in the receptor binding domain and getting access into it so on on this basis this whole AIDS uh, AIDS peptide is based on uh so obviously 
uh, they used uh, like in silico pre in, in silico um, algorithm to kind of model this protein and see how it falls and you know they recognize the most uh, accessible uh, amino acids and they build this artificial uh, recombinant protein yeah um and they also made a mutant with not matching peptides just to see how would that be of any effect. So the first experiment was testing inhibition of binding SARS-CoV-2 spike S1 to AC2 with the wild type AIDS and the mutant AIDS. AIDS. So basically they had the, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 S1 protein, they had the receptors and, um, and they, they had the AC2 receptor and added these this AIDS peptide into the mix. And they actually showed that there was a, a, a better uh, a binding of the uh, S1 subunit with the AIDS peptide as opposed to with the actual receptor. Oh, so okay. that's that's what they wanted to see, uh, this kind of binding towards the uh, the wild type AIDS and the mutant AIDS showed no, uh, no uh, action. So then uh, they moved, they wanted to see how it would react with the inflammation so this is still uh, experiments done in the uh, in the lung cells and uh, they want to show they want to show if the eight peptides could suppress the expression of pro-inflammatory molecules so they induced inflammation in these cells by actually adding to the mixture the uh, SARS-CoV-2 spike S1 protein they also add some other uh, pro-inflammatory uh, things uh, different pathogen association molecular patterns like the, uh, some foreign uh, DNA material, yeah. bacterial flagellants, these kind of things can promote uh, inf inflammatory, inflammatory response. And it's actually shown that in the presence of this wild type AIDS peptide, uh, the inflammatory markers, which were measured by the expression of interleukin-6 and interleukin-1-beta, they were shown that they were actually quite low. And they were also shown that this AIDS peptide has no effects on the inflammation caused by any other uh, pro-inflammatory stimuli. So there's actually, they showed the relation that this actual peptide can work with the SARS-CoV-2 in terms of suppressing the uh, inflammation. And we all know that the interleukin-6 and 1-beta are kind of pro-inflammatory cytokines, yeah. uh, which can cause, uh, which results this kind of a cytokine storm that is also present with the uh, SARS-CoV-2. So, so basically the, the the AIDS peptide binded to the the, the spike protein um, yeah. it doesn't it stops it binding to AC2 and it, uh, as well it doesn't cause more inf as as much inflammation as if it yeah. had bound yeah, to exactly. the AC2. Okay. You nailed it because what they reckon is upon the recognition of the spike protein and the actual AC2 receptor on the cell, there is a signal cascade, uh, yeah, signal cascade sent down uh, towards the nucleus of the cell that is being infected by the virus to start producing all of these pro-inflammatory responses. But once this binding doesn't take place, this, uh, this cascade is not present as well. Mm. So that kind of concluded, uh, th that experiment concluded the, the part that was done in the cell culture and then they actually moved into the animal models and they investigated uh, whether the lung inflammation and fever takes place. So uh, again, they, <clears throat> they conduct this intanasal intoxication, intoxication of SARS-CoV-2 spike S1 uh, in the animal models in the mice and they were especially interested in the uh, NF-kappa-beta expression. So this is like this very famous 
pro-inflammatory uh, transcription factor yeah. that is able to kind of ramp up all the other um, all the other pro-inflammatory uh, signatures. Uh, they are and they so they show that while uh, so they infected the animal models with the spike uh, S1 protein and uh, they give it some time and then they expose these animal models to the wild type AIDS peptide and of course the the mutant AIDS peptide and uh, looking at the uh, gene expression levels and the by measuring the NF kappa beta protein recruitment as well as histone acetyl transferase recruitment to the region of DNA that are responsible for expressing interleukin-6 uh, proteins. Uh, they showed that there was a decrease compared to the non-treated um, animal models. Uh, in terms of that, the uh, mRNA and protein of interleukin-6 was markedly decreased, as well as other pro-inflammatory uh, cytokines. Um, compared to the uh, uh, mice, uh, to the co compared to the control mice. So that was a, a good sign. They also me uh, me measured the overall body temperatures and they didn't notice this uh, tremendous spike in the temperature in the mice that were um, uh, that were exposed to the wild type AIDS peptide. And uh, long histology also uh, looked better in terms of that they didn't, mar they didn't see uh, loss of long epithelial uh, cells. They didn't observe uh, neutrophil infiltration, infiltration, which is like the part of immune cells. Yeah. So overall, it all looked like really, really nice and really promising. Can I ask, um, mm -hmm. could, can mice get COVID? Like, do yeah. they get affected by... Well, uh, so they use the... Um, you, you No, you have to have a specially... Formulated mice. Genet, genet, specifically, genetically... Uh, genetically made mice uh, that can be infected and express symptoms. Because they don't... Why? Because mice don't have this receptor, is it? Uh, I think so. I think it's just on the, on the regular mice that they use, they just couldn't... Uh, couldn't... Uh, just infect them with... So I think it's because of the receptors, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I was just wondering, because then... Because I suppose if the, the, the genetically made these mice that were... Um, uh, similar to what it would should look like in humans, then I suppose that's that's what you kind of want. I suppose you, you wouldn't want to do this in a is you would be kind of trying to use it in a an animal model that is similar to what the human yeah. response is. But I suppose then you then that's the whole ethical. Oh, you wouldn't want it. You don't want to do it in apes and monkeys or something. Yeah, like and that, we'll so. take way way much way more money yeah. to do it in apes. So I think they settle on the mice and I think as long as they can see like the highlights of the COVID infection in them, which is like, you know, the, the, the long damage, the, um, uh, fatigue, fatigue, uh, I don't think Fever. mice can cough, but like, you know, just overall just wear down due to the infection. Um, I think that's, that's what I want you, that's what you want to see. And I think they use, they use the, the right animal model. Of course, there is a huge road between what they have shown in this one paper in terms of what do they still have to do to, yeah. to make this unfeasible drug. Uh, but I think the, the early the early in results are are somehow promise uh, somehow promising what by what they are showing, especially if they are able to block the recognition, block the interaction between the virus and the receptor on the cell effectively. You know that is that is that is something that is some that is great because one 
as they shown, if the virus doesn't bind to the cell, you don't have this cascade of pro-inflammatory signaling going on that can mm. dis- that can disturb your body, which is great too. If you block the access of the virus to the cell, you by doing so, you actually inhibit the virus replication. Mm. That you know, we yeah. said that virus can only replicate inside the cell. So from these two points of view, this is uh, this is very optimistic. Uh, just a, a final comment. I also put it down that. Uh, they noticed that in the mice treated with the wild type AIDS, uh, after the treatment, they have really impressed their lo- locomotor activity. So they noticed that this mice that were exposed to this uh, SARS-CoV-2 spike as one protein. So again, it's not like an actual virus. It's a it's a it's a recombinant recombinant protein. So it's basically just the spike S1 uh, subunit that the mice are getting intoxicated with. So even without the presence of the whole viral genome, just the recognition of the protein with the cell receptor is able to induce uh, COVID-like symptoms. Yeah. And and that's why they think it's because of the, of the cytokines release. So yeah, when the mice were treated with the wild type AIDS, they kind of became more active and more lively as well. So, you know, it kind of, you can see that in people as well, when you sick, you just much rather be bed bound than, yeah, yeah. than anything else. So and it's an indicative that they recovered more. Than yeah. Than so, yeah. So that was, uh, and they, they still haven't, mm-hmm. so they haven't done any human clinical trials yet. Not on this one. And I don't think they're going to get into anywhere near humans until you, they improve the name. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just change one of the letters or something. Yeah. The so um, when I, when I read it, it was called AIDS. I was like, did I misread that? Or yeah. like, so yeah. it's definitely so, going to suffer in mainstream media if like AIDS <laughs> being shown to. They were like, that, that's a, if yeah, the ex president Trump, if he would heard that in time, he would like let's everybody let's get AIDS. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. So. I, I thought have, that was interesting. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I was reading something this morning, and I just want to try and find it about that drug that Trump got. Um, cause I was wondering if that was the same one that you were talking about. Oh yeah. Okay. So I, yeah, I was reading about this earlier, um, that Germany's going to use this COVID antibody cocktail that had been used by Trump when he was in hospital. Um, and I don't know, I don't, maybe this could be something similar, but I suppose if they hadn't, um, done the clinical trials yet, then I don't know if it is. Uh, but what they had said was they bought, uh, it's a, it's a, they haven't a name for it anyway, so maybe they're just trying to wait before they come up with something as... as <laughs> no, that's crazy. inflammatory. Yeah. yeah, so it's the so-called monoclonal antibody cocktail will be deployed to university hospitals in the coming week. Um, and that he didn't confirm the manufacturer, but that it was given to the US president when he was fell ill with COVID last October. And it's like a passive vaccination and administering these antibodies in the early stages can help high risk patients avoid a more serious progression. I think this is something more complex than, than yeah. what I'm talking about, because I, if they're saying like a antibodies, so mm. here what they designed in this study was just a hexapeptide. So peptide yeah. made of six amino acids, which is way simpler than antibodies. So I think the president, I think that I can. I think now I can sell Trump. I don't have to say President Trump, but they still have to say President Trump. 
No, don't say President Trump. Okay, so ex-President Trump got uh, yeah something something completely different from this. Yeah, yeah. Here it says it's um, a combination or a cocktail of two lab-made antibodies, uh, and yeah, they were developed to bind to part of the new coronavirus. Yeah, the a spike protein. Yeah, and the and it's kind of similar to what you had said that they attached to different types of the spike protein that distorts the structure and then it kind of affects the lock and key shape of the the binding yeah. receptor um interaction so yeah like it seemed super promising for him so uh i think that's a kind of another step in the right direction so hopefully that can be helpful and help reduce deaths uh, yeah i wonder how much that cost that form of treatment I'd say it's expensive. Uh, they don't know who. I don't know who's produ- They said they don't know who's manufacturing it. By the time in a, in the US, it was Regeneron, um, and yeah, they 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 tr- used it as a treatment even before it won regulatory approval. So it was a bit mad that they did it. They treated them with it when they didn't mm-hmm. really have approval. So they obviously had to, must have had an idea like this really works when they would dose the president with it. Yeah, well, it was it was the president. Like you have to know what you're doing at the time. But like, yeah, I think this would this this if this works, what they do in here, it's a cheaper alternative to I suppose antibody treatment. You know? Yeah. Because you just yeah. manufacturing a six six amino acids long protein. Yeah. I can see the advantage of anti of using antibodies because once the I, I presume once the SARS CoV two is is tagged with the antibodies like from the IgG family they are they are approximately are being like uh, they're very visible from macrophages to start a kind of neutralizing these particles mm-hmm. so like this is the extra advantage of antibodies whereas here uh, just by blocking the uh, the spike protein the spike protein with this AIDS peptide, you per, you not necessarily have to trigger also like a immune response in macrophages that would clean them up. Yeah. Uh, see, they didn't do that. So actually, yeah, now that I think of it, it would be nice to see whether this kind of uh, interaction between SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and this AIDS peptide, has is this triggering in any way uh, an immune system in terms of macrophages or stuff like that, you know, to kind of start removing these... Uh, circulating particles and then who would uh, is that, like, who would you dose would you give it to people who just got admitted or would you give it to people with serious covid oh like yeah, that exactly. this is what they in this case like they only have bought enough doses that they will give it to really at-risk people that are highly at risk of developing serious conditions but yeah if it helps reduce the icu admissions and stuff that'd be brilliant yeah yeah again it all comes down to uh releasing some pressure from the hospital wards yeah. right yeah yeah okay so that's a wrap uh, a different take on the treatment of COVID-19 mm-hmm. another Not, uh, another yeah. strand another strand to the yeah. story or chapter no re- to the story no rebranding drugs but maybe putting something new out okay yeah. that was me uh, uh, but anyway yeah anyway Evan so yeah I think uh, I, so this week I wanted to talk about asymptomatic transmission um, of SARS-CoV-2 basically because I think it's not really well understood and that a lot of people are it's a lot it's being talked about a lot in the media and uh being touted as this kind of like i suppose boogeyman i suppose in the way of like how do we know if these vaccines are going to stop it and all this and etc so yeah i just wanted to help explain this to people and break it down 
so yeah, basically the questions I think people want to know is like testing. So how do we test for asymptomatic transmission in the population? Mass screening with PCR is very inefficient, but then there's a massive problem with rapid testing at the moment because it's uh, giving false positives and false negatives. And uh, that's a big problem, especially with false negatives because it then risks of spreading it more. Um, then transmission, are these people transmitting the virus as much as as much or more than people without symptoms or are these numbers actually just being exaggerated and is there a thing as truly asymptomatic as people are saying mm -hmm. and then as well with the vaccine will this stop the transmission within these patients or is it only going to be stopping in, in symptomatic i think this is all questions that people want to know and kind of aren't sure about so i'm going to try and explain it to people um so and ex yeah, see, so examine what we knew know and what we don't know about it. So, uh, so you kind of explain what viruses are. Uh, for the majority of viruses, they don't cause uh, they cause minimal damage really, and um, and then the ultimate weapon for a virus is asymptomatic spread. They want to spread to as many people as possible and survive as long as possible uh, without being destroyed. Um, yeah, and generally they that's that's why they don't tend to be very lethal because their aim isn't really to kill. It's kind of just to spread as much as possible. Uh, and then, but the amount of harm a virus can cause, it's based really on two important characteristics. It's the lethality and the rate of transmission. Mm -hmm. The more deadly it is, the less likely it can spread far outside of these settings. So generally, the, yeah, the more... It harm it like with Ebola, how it kills so a lot. Yeah. Uh, but then it that risks it can't really transmit because these people are generally bed bound, can't spread, can't uh be able to spread the virus, and then the virus dies off. And which the virus doesn't want it happen. It wants to keep spreading. And so you have to have the balance between how deadly the virus is and yeah, because that dictates how quickly it can spread. Really. Yeah. But yeah. then even. Uh, even those that don't kill that can still cause a lot of harm, which is exactly what we're seeing right now, because a lot. Uh, this is the whole thing, it kills only 1% or whatever, but then it can still cause a lot of ha damage to the health service because a lot of people have severe uh, infection and then it, it causes, and it's still spreading as well, and then it just causes, yeah, the big peak in hospital mm. admissions. Um, so, yeah people are like should we do mass testing to to test to see if asymptomatic is happening and then uh then we can kind of detect this but uh yeah it, we're, the different um methods of doing this they're still not sure of okay so uh maybe to explain it i suppose i'd say most people understand but what is asymptomatic so in medicine it means a person that has no symptoms and even under persistent questioning asymptomatic people deny they ever experience signs which like such as a fever or symptoms like muscle aches mm -hmm. um, and then so how do we find out the answer to what is the true asymptomatic population so the uk has actually done a lot of work under this and they've called it operation moonshot i think i've kind of mentioned this previously uh so they unveiled these rapid tests and they were going to screen cities and universities to see how many had these asymptomatic cases, how infectious they were, and how much they could do to contribute to its transmission. So this is uh, their way of trying to find out. Um, but the unusual 
aspect in the disease management of COVID is that a positive test result is the sole criteria for a true COVID-19 case. I mentioned this last you week. You mentioned this last time, yeah. yeah. And this is the problem. It's like normally a test is only supportive for clinical diagnosis and not a substitute. Uh, and what the implications of this is that we don't really know the true proportion of people with positive results who are truly asymptomatic throughout the course of their infection and the pe- proportion who are post-symptomatic, so that means they're below the threshold of detection, pre-symptomatic, go on to develop symptoms later, or post-infection, that the viral d- RNA is still detectable from earlier infection. Um, does that make sense? Sort of, yeah. Okay. Uh, anyways, so, uh, yeah, there's been real difficulties in determining true asymptomatic paces. Earlier estimates, I remember actually, sorry, remember when this all happened and some people were like, oh, asymptomatic is the big transmi- driver of transmission. I think mm-hmm. it was all this. And they were saying that was like 80% of infections were asymptomatic earlier in the in the mm-hmm. pandemic. This has since been dismissed and it's actually been revised around 17 to 20% of people. From this 80 will, down to uh, down to 17 or 20. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and this was seen in early antibody studies where people were surprised at how few people had produced antibodies. And at the beginning, most people were like, oh, maybe it's just that they didn't produce antibodies rather than being exposed. I think we talked about this in like our first or second episode. Yeah, the zero prevalence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this proportion is still in doubt, however, as these studies are limited by uh, heterogeneity in the case definitions, incomplete symptom assessment and an inadequate retrospective and prospective follow-up of symptoms. So basically what this means is heterogeneity in case definitions. So basically when you have a, a, a COVID case, you would be like, okay, they need to have positive, but they also need to have, what what symptoms do they need to have? Do they need to have a cough? Do they need to have a fever? Do they need to have a sore throat, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. in one of these studies, it was a highly touted study in Italy. It claimed that 43% of patients were asymptomatic, but they defined symptoms as having the presence of fever and a cough and no other symptoms. So if you didn't have a fever or a cough, they were like, oh, you're asymptomatic then. Uh, and then this led to this high figure of 43%. And we now know that there's a lot more symptoms like loss of taste and smell, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So that was why it was so high. And then in Iceland, a study was highlighted by saying 50% were asymptomatic, but this actually was re- recalculated to be like 43% as the participants who tested positive that reported no symptoms uh, developed symptoms later on and they didn't really follow it up. So this is the the issue with trying to calculate true asymptomatic people. Right. Yeah, it's kind of tricky when like you think you're asymptomatic and you re- report you're asymptomatic and then after a while you start developing symptoms. Yeah, so... Like, yeah. What are you all... Yeah. Are you asymptomatic? Are you... Yeah. How, how you should be qualified as an asymptomatic person or mm. yeah so uh yeah and so we're still there's still so much unknowns really again with covid i've always keep saying this they're still unsure what extent people with no symptoms transmit SARS-CoV-2 the only test for live virus is using viral culture with PCR and lateral flow they don't distinguish if it's a live virus or not and there's no test of infection or infectiousness currently available for use. So this is why we're we're still hypothetically calculating what we think asymptomatic is. Because it's a lot it's a lot more work to find out 
if it's actually live virus they're transmitting or on how infectious that is. So we're we're at a limit to that. And this was the problem with this new variant as well, because there's no way of measuring this. Uh, and was based justly off the increased emissions into hospitals within the UK. Um, so yeah, it's just it's just interesting that we have to kind of help it. I just a side note that um, new variant in the UK, they were either able to detect it. This is the way they had to find out that it was more infectious was during the second lockdown, and the cases were pretty stable in the UK. But there was a surprising. Uh, increase in the area of Kent in the south of England where there was rising numbers of cases mm. and then they did a prompt investigation and then they found supported with genomic data uh, a large numbers of this variant it's B.1.1.7 and then they basically were able to do a range of different independent analyses and they compared the comparative growth rates of this variant to other variants and they showed there was a marked increase in the growth rate compared to other strains. And that actually was interesting because they could identify this new strain because the true routine PCR, because the S gene was, uh, not being wasn't being amplified up. So they had this, uh, you were lacking this uh, gene. So mm -hmm. they were able to track it's being moved. And now they reckon this variant's going to end up taking over all the variants currently out there in transmission. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be the one that takes it all over. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, so currently, as things stand, a person who tests positive with any kind of test may or not may or may not have an, an active infection with live virus, and they may or may not be infectious. So we're kind of like, hmm. And that's the limitation of the PCR test. It just yeah. kind of tells the presence of RNA viral. Exactly. And in, an interesting was... This is something I heard because you hear about this whole thing in the Australian Open where uh, basically a lot of players flew to Australia. They got tested on the plane and when they got to Australia, some of them came up positive and they were like, you have to isolate for 14 days within your hotel room. These professional tennis players and they were like, if we had no, they thought that if they came up positive that they still might be able to train or they wouldn't have to isolate just when in their hotel room but they're like no you can't leave their mm. hotel room so they were like we're going to be stuck in the hotel room i'm going to be in worse shape going into a tennis tournament than if i had to stay at home but yeah anyways there was one player he had actually recovered from the initial positive test he got in november but he still was testing positive again before he traveled to australia and they, they classed it as just viral shedding and they let him travel as they said he wasn't infectious. So there are still these cases where someone's still testing positive months after their initial one, but they're not infectious. Yeah. So this and is another... Yeah. And the PCR the, probably worked properly because it detected... Uh, yeah, but they're they're just... It's just shedding, but it's not infectious. So this is another thing. You're like, so he's still positive, but he's not infectious? Then why are we using... Is there not another way of detecting this infectiousness? But we don't. So yeah, that's this one of the limits. <laughs> Crazy. It's like uh, John Jones testing positive for doping again <laughs> after like yeah, it kind of it 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 looks that recently? similar. Uh, not recently. Well, like it uh, it it happened quite some time ago, but it's still mm. kind of freshy enough. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. So he got it. He got once caught doing the 
performance performance enhancers then they blocked him then he came back they tested him again and it was like he's still positive and they said oh no it's the remnants of the yeah, old yeah, yeah. positive test so this is kind of similar here yeah this is with was, the limitations of yeah. these tests as well um yeah so then so just to be aware of some of these terms for people listening so your viral load that's the amount of of virus that's present in, in an individual viral shedding as i just mentioned it's when you're sick with the virus the cells in your body host an infection they release these sometimes infectious virus particles which then are shed into the environment uh, and this primarily occurs when we talk cough sneeze etc uh, and then shedding includes the viral genetic material and some these aren't necessarily infectious so actually can contain the genetic material and it can contain just the, the virus that actually can be infectious and then infectiousness that's the ability of the disease to be passed easily from one person to another through air or water and the reason i want to mention this is that the relationship between this viral load viral shedding infection infectiousness and the duration of infectiousness is still really not well understood uh, in a recent asymptomatic review, no study was able to culture a live virus from asymptomatic patients after the ninth day of illness, despite persistently high viral loads in quantitative PCR diagnostic tests. And yeah, this brings up the other point of contention, the cycle threshold or the CT values from PCR tests are not direct measures of viral load and then are subject to error. So we're kind of using this PCR value to tell us information that it's not meant to be for if you understand me yeah can i and this is actually i want to throw this question to you then because this is another kind of uh side note as well because i'm mentioning the pcr uh, and this is such a big conspiracy that people are using do you know where i'm going with this oh uh, let's what see do you, what do you say about the whole conspiracy that at high enough ct values that you're amplifying up nonsense and that if you do it uh if you do it you can find almost anything in anybody claims about pcr tests in ireland have said that they are inaccurate or causes a high volume of spurious false positives because the hsc is using 40 to 45 amplification cycles which posters are saying too many because you're the molecular guy okay. so uh, what's your counterpoint yeah, to i didn't these know people? sorry so okay uh thanks for this question because uh, i know this is like a big a lot of people have talked to me about this and i'm like yeah but then i just like this could be a good way of rebutting this okay and okay trying putting the ball into my corner <laughs> okay so uh, i didn't know that this that the they were using that many cycles no okay this is one of the conspiracies they're saying so but what would you still think that's possible i think it m makes sense and i remember I remember there very, um, very vividly, um, but when I was showing my data during my one, one of my lab meetings, one of the first things my supervisor said was show us the CT number because I was doing something with the qPCR, and uh, one of the first thing was like how many how many CTs values there were, and I think it, there is some truth to it. Like the higher you go with the CT values, the more likely that your PCR is not gonna be as accurate uh, i i can confirm nor can i deny that there is a truth that, that in what you ask me like if i go if you go up to 40 45 cycles whether you can detect anything i don't know but there is a truth that the more ct values they allow themselves for uh, the higher that number it kind of takes away from the 
quality of the of the result or the reliable not quality reli reliability of the result i would say uh i think especially if you because i only i only know this from the perspective of gene expression so you like if some gene has is want to be express want to be expressed at the high levels in a in a certain tissue you, you would you would need a certain you certainly need small amount of the cts to to reach certain levels yeah. of, of expression so i think that could hold true in, into different scenarios therefore i think that yeah the more in you the more you play with the ct cycles the more you then increase them the less reliable your results can be yeah see okay so you're saying it is a possibility there's okay. a, there could be some truth to it yeah okay i didn't want I you to say that <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> no but it's i just wanted to see your perspective um but, but i'm not expert in qpcrs well i think it, yeah well i think they don't generally amplify up i think not to the 45 and generally you need to have the the viral rna there in order to amplify up anything um and generally that uh the the higher the the viral rna that's present then the quicker the the lower your ct value will be because there's, it'll amplify up much quicker whereas if you have less then it'll be a higher ct value but generally uh i i i think you have to, it, it, the amount of false positives i think are very minimal that to this whole higher amplification i think it's being way over sold um to justify all oh, like they're they're making up this whole they're amplifying up to, up to this high amount just so they could find something so they can lock us all up i'm like no it's not that um this is i think generally it will always detect if there's something there and they they have controls i think and checks that um that to make sure that they're not amplifying up nothing that there is always something there that's that's what i would say anyways i mean if you're if in your protocol you have some ridiculous cycling numbers you yeah know, like you'd be like this is i don't think this pcr is i don't you, you could say like oh i don't know if the protocol for this pcr is actually good you know <laughs> yeah but so, I, I i don't think they go up that high but yeah you they have a rigorous protocol in place that uh they this is not something that's what should happen no and you know pcr is any other PCR reaction can lead, reach its plateau, so because it would run out of reagents of the building blocks of what it's creating. Yeah. So you know, on the one hand, you can say that you can push your CT cycles as far as you want, the number of cycles. But then, at some point, there's just the cycles can can be keep going on, but then you, you're gonna run out of the building materials yeah. within the reaction. So you're not gonna be actually amplifying anything at that point. But yeah, I don't, I don't think. Like it, this, this thing that you asked me, it kind of hold it could be realistic if people would actually be doing this. So that could happen, but I don't think anyone is hmm. is pushing these reactions to its absolute yeah. limit just to prove a point. You know. Yeah. So hypothetically, it could happen, but the chances of all this people being in a conspiracy to try and create a false positive so that the government can control us, I think, is yeah very I, unusual like yeah. i don't know why the government will get out of it it yeah. takes one scientist posting a question on our reddit and everybody <laughs> will be like what are you doing this that many times yeah, that's yeah. crazy so every person in every diagnostic lab is doing this 
yeah uh, or like maybe they'd be like oh but they're unknowingly doing it but i think most people would be would know. you you spent four years in college to learn something so hopefully by the time you leave the the case that you're gonna be doing something unknowingly it's like not happening at all yeah. because you're trained to know what you're doing and not to be just fed not to be just told to set something up and then never raise a question yeah <laughs> anyways yeah that i just wanted to kind of bring that up just during my whole discussion um yeah so sidetrack there okay but anyways so uh yeah while viral loads seem to be similar in people with and without symptoms the presence of rna does not necessarily represent transmissible live virus as i was saying and this duration the duration of viral rna shedding um which is the interval between the first and last pcr result positive pcr results is shorter in people who remain asymptomatic um so they actually would be probably less infectious than people who develop symptoms so you would think okay they don't really drive the infection as much because they don't shed the virus for as long um viral culture studies suggest that people with SARS-CoV-2 can become infectious one to two days before the onset of symptoms and then continue to be infectious up to seven days after therefore it is actually thought that symptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission has a greater role in the spread of SARS-CoV-2 than truly asymptomatic transmission um yeah this is and I, this is something i wanted to mention because i remember at christmas i knew people um who were getting tested for covid even though they didn't have symptoms before they went home because they wanted it to be they wanted to be more safer yeah and re- reduce reduce the risk and i was like but the odds of you being positive at this point of time are going to be so astronomically low i don't think it's really worth getting the test because it's it's not going to tell you anything um and then i suppose they were like oh but maybe pre-symptomatic or something like that but i still think truly asymptomatic is very low that i don't know if it really is something that we need to be at this stage when rates are so high i don't think it's something that we need to be worried about it's more symptomatic people um but yeah there was a citywide prevalence study also done that within 10 million people in wuhan they found no evidence of asymptomatic transmission and the screening program was done several weeks after the city underwent two and a half months lockdown Uh, and yeah so they and they said that coughing which is a prominent symptom of covid may result in far more viral particles being shed than talking and breathing so pimpton symptoms are much more infectious but then the other counterpoint is do people who are asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic potentially have more context and then carry out more risky behavior because if you have symptoms you would hope to think the person would uh go isolate straight away and wouldn't expose anyone else mm-hmm. whereas if you're pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic and you don't have anything then you're you're kind of might have a few more contacts and then that that's spreading it more so it's like which one do you think is it the risk of people who have symptoms who are spreading it more or people who don't have symptoms but then they're encountering more people and that's causing the spread I suppose it's kind of a bit of both, really. Yeah, well, then I think the best answer to this is whether your whether your country or your region has a, a tracing, what their tracing system mm. like, you know, yeah. how, how soon can they contact these people and whether you're being told to contact people back two or three days before you developed symptoms, you know, that's yeah. whatever, you know, but it's all about how soon I can contact these people uh, and let, let and let them know. 
Hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So you should be looking to see just even if you have the symptoms, maybe a day or two even before, because this is pre-symptomatic. Seems to be possibly a role that's causing the transmission. But uh, yeah, that's why I I still think asymptomatic would generally be more classes pre-symptomatic than I think true asymptomatic. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in conclusion then, how do we learn from this and bring it into the future? Um, do we, Should we prioritize rapid testing of symptomatic people? Uh, is it actually going to have a greater impact on identifying positive case and reducing transmission than frequent testing of asymptomatic people in an outbreak area? So yeah, should Are we wasting our resources trying to find small cases of these asymptomatic where we should be just more focused on accurately get, get detecting people who have symptoms and then reducing their contacts transmission um and yeah searching for asymptomatic and infectious is like searching for needles that appear and reappear transi- transiently particularly if rates are falling and that this mass testing risk diversion of scarce res- resources anyways yeah um and yeah and what what can we do to improve this should we be publishing the proportions of people with positive and negative results alongside the purpose of the testing strategy and the population tested so are we screening should they be reporting oh we screened this in healthy populations whereabouts was it in schools is in universities and healthcare uh was it people with symptoms what without symptoms i suppose this would then maybe kind of help give an understanding of this uh, and yeah, carefully designed prospective studies of cases and contexts are needed to estimate transmission rates by people with and without symptoms. And these should include careful investigations of outbreaks, testing all contacts of people with a clear history of exposure. And then, yeah, see to try and give a true answer of this. So, yeah, that's what I uh, kind of wanted to. I hope that that made it clear for people what what the whole asymptomatic thing means and sounds like a busy agenda um yeah from what you just listed there yeah it's it's very that's why it's like super labor intensive to detect all these these cases that are may or may not be causing uh new cases of covid like is it really uh i not i would think like we should just where cases are now in ireland and i suppose the netherlands i think we should just be focusing solely on trying to get uh people who are uh positive with symptoms i think asymptomatic it's just so high now it doesn't really matter and when you get to a low enough stage then where there's outbreaks maybe in a i don't know in a in a nursing home or something like that then we should do a mass testing just to see if we can detect the asymptomatic people but i think at the moment when cases are so high i think asymptomatic it just doesn't really make sense to be looking for it yeah just fight fight the enemy you can see yeah and just focus your resources on that and then when we can when, and I think, yeah, that the testing for asymptomatic is only really useful in uh, in outbreak situations. I think mass testing it just doesn't really make sense to me because it, it, how useful is it? What 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 will it tell you? Um, yeah, and I, well, for me, as I was listening to you, it was uh, you also mentioned that the number of the asymptomatic cases it's way lower than what we have originally thought. Mm, yeah, uh, and I think that is and somehow reassuring because at the start of it i also heard some voices saying oh have you ever seen a disease that causes an a that 
leads to asymptomatic infection or something. And like, you know, people were like raising voices that how, how does disease exist that cause no symptoms? And now actually after a while, there are results showing up that this actually asymptomatic thing is way smaller mm -hmm. and way more ambiguous than what we have thought at the, at, at the start. So that from one perspective, it can take away, uh, some aim ammo from people who want to kind of, uh, be skeptical yeah <laughs> uh, not skeptical but who wants to like you know just go into deep end on the conspiracy that the corona doesn't exist because yeah, yeah. what sort of virus doesn't cause symptoms but anyway but um, i think it was just that that with that one that came out at the beginning they were like that's i suppose that i suppose that helped the transmission but usually you always have to have symptoms to spread it like they, i've that's the thing they were like different i don't think there's a huge amount of viruses out there that can spread when, when you have no symptoms so yeah uh, that was i suppose the big scaring point and yeah uh that's why i think it was trying to trying to help people understand this and what it means and the, the limitations of measuring this within within science right now and uh yeah just something we can try and f learn from and hopefully uh improve on i think trying to find a test that is shows infectiousness is an important step in establishing how infectious these people are and how infectious people like super spreaders and all this these terms being used yeah um and that they're using i suppose pcr in a, w a way that shouldn't be used to like or to uh use it to define things that aren't in its uh realm of mm. uh testing so but yeah I, and again it's not a big conspiracy we aren't they're not amplifying up things that aren't there they're not create artificially creating these so sorry elon because elon <laughs> musk was one of these people oh, pushing yeah. this uh wonder if he got it now um, oh supposedly he did that was the whole the picture with the picture with joe rogan and because grimes had it his wife wife no sorry oh, girlfriend okay. oh yeah and so for so for context elon musk went to a comedy show with oh was it a comedy show? i think so a comedy show. was it I don't uh, know, but he was in the surrounding by like loads of comedians, including and Dave Chappelle and Joe Rogan, and then Dave Chappelle came up positive, positive for COVID, yeah. and then I think Grimes, his girlfriend, got it, and he didn't. He's not announced it, but he yeah, it'd be it. typical. He wouldn't. He wouldn't tell people he got it because he he wouldn't fit his narrative really. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, but b back to the asymptomatic. Um, interesting. Seems like the seems, seems like UK is doing a lot of uh, investigative science. Mm. Um, but I still think this whole ma they have this mass testing with these uh, rapid tests, and I think there's a whole um, it's a whole other episode about the problems that had these rapid tests and how the government is still pushing them, even though the sensitivity is really bad. That they're, they're given a lot of false negatives. And my again, friend, my oh, friend works as a healthcare professional in UK, and she was, and she's actually doing on the regular basis the uh, uh, the lateral flow tests, and she has a like a little book, like a little notebook or book when she writes down all the results. Obviously, she's been negative throughout, but um, yeah, it's it's interesting to see like how much uh, effort they put into like testing people. But yeah, and, and but the thing is, is like if things like I suppose now it doesn't really matter because if she was just at home. But like if they're still doing this rapid testing and things are opening up, she could just get a test 
uh, at home and come up false negative and then she'd be like okay i can go out and socialize now and meet loads of people because i'm neg- uh i'm negative where it could have been actually a false negative and then we yeah, had but, this problem but what's the alternative evan like just to to not do up. it to stay at home stay at home all the time and just build up the paranoia in your head <laughs> true true that's good counterpoint um i don't know it's maybe develop better tests yeah it's yeah it's like do better as you do said. better yeah okay well i can get on board with that <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so that was that was uh that was all i wanted to say so yeah Hope thanks evan will be um we are way more aware now about the concept of asymptomatic yeah people the concept of shredding uh by RNA shedding shred- shedding <laughs> and getting <I'm> shredded <laughs> virus getting shredded like right now uh yeah hopefully um hopefully it um, makes people think um, yeah yeah and twice. just be aware of yeah maybe it's not as scary as people think uh yeah so on that note i think we might as well end it there yeah to everyone have a wonderful uh, thursday because you're gonna be listening on thursday yeah Whatever, whatever day you're listening to this um, yeah. and do you know what you're going to talk about next week no I have to think uh, about something hopefully my agenda is going to be a little bit more relaxed this week yeah. so I have more time looking up something outside of the uh, infectious disease mm-hmm. okay yourself well, uh, no I'm not sure yet um, we might yeah we'll see we'll see uh, yeah so yeah uh stay skeptical guys we'll talk to talk to you on the next one uh yeah and if you have any questions or want to reach out we actually had a fan who reached out there recently Yay. one of our first uh emails so be your be be like that or if you <laughs> be want like to that. <laughs> be like our one fan <laughs> reach out god damn it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes if you had COVID, tell us how you survive it if you had vaccine tell us how you experience in it just let us be part of your family <laughs> why would you let us love you <laughs> yeah. are you offended with my love <laughs> yeah okay uh yeah so anyways yeah stay skeptical yeah. and chat to you on the next one stay skeptical bye